folks like Viola and Lincoln Alexander and Jean Augustine and others, Alvin Curling is another one, and many, many others, Tony Ince, those are the folks we are inspired by. And those are the folks on, on whose shoulders we stand on. Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and this February marks the 25th anniversary of Black History Month here in Canada, since then Liberal MP Jean Augustine led a motion to have it recognized. Writing in the Toronto Star recently, Minister Ahmed Hussein reflected on what Black History Month means in 2021, and he joins me on this episode to discuss why he's looking at that history through the lens of deeply troubling events, what action the government has succeeded in taking to date to address racial equality, and what more needs to come. Ahmed is a smart and accomplished cabinet minister with a background as a lawyer, political staffer, and member of and leader in many different community-focused organizations. He also has a unique perspective on government and anti-racism policies. He was born in Mogadishu, Somalia, leaving with his family when he was a kid after the Somali Civil War, eventually arriving in Toronto. And despite all of his accomplishments since, he said he still gets followed around in stores and has spoken out about the history of racial profiling in Canada. Ahmed, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The House of Commons officially recognized Black History Month in Canada following a motion introduced by Jean Augustine that was December in 1995. You wrote in the Toronto Star recently, as a refugee from Somalia and a grateful public servant, I usually look forward to this month as a time for reflection and a recognition of Canada's progress. But this year, it is different. In 2021, we must reflect on Black history through the lens of deeply troubling events. So how are you thinking about Black History Month this year? I'm thinking about it with the backdrop of the George Floyd incident, where we all saw, all of us, uh, through the, the power of the of the camera, a man who was pinned down by a police officer with other police officers and, and other folks watching, where he uh, he died in front of us uh, virtually, and it took eight minutes and 46 seconds, where he's, he's crying uh, for help. He is saying, I can't breathe, and, uh, and the officer is inhumanely not moving, and, and then it results with his death. So that is the backdrop, uh, and I'm not saying that's the only incident. There's, there's a lot of things that happen in the United States, but also in Canada. And, uh, you know, one of the, as, as tragic as that was, one of the things that, 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 that I think it, it created, uh, as far as Canada is concerned, is, is a rise in consciousness within a, lot of, within a lot of folks, especially young people in Canada, on really stepping up to the plate and demanding better from all our systems, the law enforcement system, the education system, the healthcare system, and so on. Uh, and so I, I reflect on that. And then in the context of the pandemic, this has been a really difficult year. The past year has been difficult for a lot of folks. But again, because we are measuring things differently through StatScan and other uh, bodies, uh, more local bodies in Toronto, for example, we find that, uh, surprise, surprise, the pandemic has disproportionately disproportionately affected black indigenous and people of color in terms of its impact its economic impact its social impact its uh its uh, its disruptive elements right uh so i'm reflecting you know when i wrote the the article i felt the need to 
to really, first of all, reflect on on the progress that has been made 25 years since Jean Augustine. I, I spoke to her recently and I said, you know, what was that like? Was it a walk in the park when you introduced that? She said, absolutely not. She said it was very difficult. She had to deal with MPs on the opposite side who were even questioning the, the, the need for Black History Month. And they said, well, why not have all people's history? Month? Right, you know, that right, kind of right, right, right. All, all lives matter. Right. So she had to push through that. And I... You know, I thanked her in public and I said, you know, a lot of folks thank you for introducing it, but I'm going to thank you for your bra- bravery and your courage because I can't imagine as as much as we would like to think that 1995 was as progressive as it is now. It wasn't. And, uh, and she had to overcome that. But I think in terms of just being a public servant, I, th- I thought it was important for me to pen to pen those, those thoughts to paper. And it's, it's a constant struggle because on one hand, you don't want to seem like you want to diminish or not mention the progress because progress has been made. A ton of progress has been made. Well, let's let's pause there then because I think it is important. And, and you mentioned in the article, it's why you've been working hard every day with your colleagues to, to yeah. accomplish some progress and to make your representation leads to action. So let's talk about that progress and that action. Yeah. And what would you hold out as we've been elected since October 2015 and in your conversations with there's no single black community, but with black Canadians yes. and with and with people who care about fundamental equality, what do you hold out as the most important progress that we've made? A couple of things. Number one, engagement. I think our, our government's engagement with the community has been authentic. It's been constant. It's been deep, and it's been diverse. Because again, it reflects on the diversity of the black Canadian community and experience as well. And even I had to learn about that. As someone who went to high school in Ontario, you get a very Ontario-centric view of Black history and uh, Black Canadian history, I should say. And it wasn't until I went to law school, uh, like you, that I learned about Viola Desmond and, and her incredible story of courage and bravery. And I got to tell you, so I met, I met her family members at a conference uh, right after that. And it was, it was incredible. A very unassuming group of people. And I remember meeting a number of folks after that saying to them, regular Canadians saying, hey, do you know about Viola Desmond? She's fantastic. And they would say, oh, you mean the Rosa Parks of Canada? And then I went back to my uh, readings and I realized that uh, Viola Desmond preceded Rosa Parks by nine years. So Rosa Parks is actually the Viola Desmond of the United States. (laughs) So it's really unfortunate a lot of people didn't know her then. Uh, a lot less people don't know her now, but still too many for my comfort. But I, I'm, I'm, I was very excited when we put her on the $10 bill, when our government did that. And I think that will help spread uh, awareness about Viola Desmond. And then when I, as a, as a member of parliament and minister, I flew to Nova Scotia for immigration ministry reasons. But then I made a, a point to visit uh, Daryl Sampson's writing, Sackville Prescott Chesset Cook. And in there is incredible layers and layers of black history, uh, different waves of immigration, starting from before modern Canada until now. And seeing that blew my socks away because it, as someone from Ontario, I just wasn't aware of that, right? The extent and the depth and visiting Africville after that uh, and then coming back. So I don't think that's well known. And then uh, three, two other things. Number one, going to Saskatoon. I was at an event with Syrian refugees. It was summer. We were celebrating their welcome. And I read a plaque 
a big plaque in the park commemorating that park. And it talked about black immigration from the United States to, to Saskatoon in the 1800s. And again, I didn't know that. And then going to, uh, to Vancouver in my second week on this, in, in this new ministry and visiting uh, a, an incredible cutting-edge modular housing project that was built in four months. Four months from the conception to people actually moving in. By the way, that was the idea for Rapid Housing Initiative. That's where I got the idea. And that project was built on land, organized and put together by, uh, by Jimi Hendrix's mom. Really? She, she used to be a huge organizer of the Black Canadian community in Vancouver. She was a convener and an advocate, advocate and an activist. And she brought all those people together. And that piece of land was taken away from the Black community, but then now given back. And symbolically, that piece of land, at least part of it, has now formed a multi-level apartment building that was built in four months that is housing people straight from the street. That is, when I visited there, these folks were thriving. Some had gone back to work. Others had started their businesses and so on. And again, I wasn't aware of that presence in British Columbia. Hogan's Alley, that's the name of the place. You can Google it. Hogan's Alley. It's a very old black settlement. We don't know these things, right? And so that history, I think, is important. And, and by the way, folks like Viola and Lincoln Alexander and Jean Augustine and others, Alvin Curling is another one, and many, many others, Tony Ince, those are the folks we are inspired by. And those are the folks on, on whose shoulders we stand on. The reason you have Black History Month now is because of the bravery and courage of that woman and foresight. The reason you have a black caucus that is accepted, that's listened to, is because of all the work that was that was done by those who paved the way. So history is really important. The progress, uh, where do I even begin? The first thing that I think is extremely important in terms of progress to note is we now measure things differently. The black Canadian community had been asking us for years to take data disaggregated by race so that we can really see the impact. And it is because of that, for the first time in July, uh, StatScan released job numbers that were disaggregated by race. And it was only because of that we know that the unemployment rate for Black Canadians was, in terms of COVID and pre-COVID, the change was, was much, much higher and more severe than the regular population. But the only reason we know that is because the July numbers were different. Prior to that, we didn't know that. Those things were masked. The second time the StatScan did that is in December. We, we've also seen those impacts. So I think we're measuring things differently and kudos to StatScan. But it was because of leadership of our government listening to the community. The second thing we did is something that I and many others fought for in the background. A lot of people didn't know this. Is From 2015 to 2018, we fought really, really hard for named and dedicated funding for Black community organizations and Black community issues. And 2018, I remember Minister Monod getting up and reading the speech. And it was the first time in 151 years of Canada where Black Canadians were named and dedicated funding, line by line. And it was a total of about 100 million. It was incredible. And then we repeated that in 2019. So again, lots of progress. And then recently, PM flew down to, uh, to Toronto to announce $221 million for Black economic development. He announced that in August, the Black community had asked us of that during Black History Month lobby day in February. So that was the turnaround. That's really fast for, for delivery. And I think that will also 
make a big difference because a lot of black entrepreneurs don't have access to capital due to systemic issues uh, from banks and other financial institutions and our government stepping up. The, the capacity building money that, uh, that I'm in charge of, housing. I, I just recently launched a new pilot program. We, te- we test new things all the time with Habitat for Humanity. 200 black Canadian families will have access to home ownership because we know that home ownership is one of the keys to build wealth and, and, and to eliminate poverty. By the way, StatScan has also shown that black Canadians and African Canadians are the only group in Canada, the only group whose educational attainment and poverty levels and financial status goes down from one generation to another. Everyone else goes up. So when people talk about racialized Canadians, it's important to focus on that. But I think for black Canadians, it's particularly severe, a lot of these issues. When you talk about overrepresentation in jails, I think you have to separate Indigenous and Black from other people of color. Because again, it, it is, it's night and day. It's not even in the same ballpark. So sometimes I think it's also important to unpack these things and, and realize, wait a second, we, we kind of need separate approaches for Black and Indigenous before we get to everyone else. Last but not least is, is a program that I think, you know, I, I've been pushing hard for over the years, is a program that worked really, really well in uh, Saskatchewan with First Nations, where the community partnered with with the unions to introduce vocational training from day one of when folks uh, land in in correctional facility. And when they came out, it wouldn't be their buddy waiting outside. It would be a member of the union waiting to sign them up for for building trades, because building trades are one of the few areas in which you can join with, with a criminal record. That program was borrowed, that idea was borrowed by Black Canadian leaders in Toronto. They implemented it in the provincial jails in the GTA. The program was so successful, 98% success, that other communities were asking to get in. Other offenders were saying, we, we want in. This is, this is amazing. So I, I think we should do that federally as well, because the, the increase between 2003 to 2016 of Black Canadian males in federal penitentiaries has increased by 80%. So we need to do more there. Let's pick up on that then, that notion of we need to do more, because you also, in your article said, but we made progress, but that's not all there is to do. Yes, we need to do way more. And in your comments, you reference the disproportionate impact of our criminal justice system on Black Canadians, Indigenous Canadians too, to an even greater degree, unfortunately. I've, I've spoken to Professor Akwazi Wusubempa about this previously here on the podcast, and, and the numbers are unsettling, to say the least. And when we look at addressing those numbers and addressing criminal justice reform, it seems to me that we didn't really have as serious a conversation between 2015 and 2019. But then you point to George Floyd's death. You point to you know the fact that many Canadians have been galvanized to care even more. There were protests you attended alongside the prime minister. Yes. The throne speech recognizes this issue in a more serious way. So what would you like to see on this issue to starting with, there are lots of different issues we can talk about, but starting with criminal justice reform, is it mandatory minimum sentences? Is it conditional sentencing changes that Harper brought in? I think all of the above, plus, plus. How about we reduce the number of people who even interact with this heavy-handed system? So how about we rebalance the system a little more and do more with pre-charge diversion. This is something that works really well, saves us a ton of money, 
leaves the justice system to deal with people who should be dealt by the justice system and uh, saves lives, saves a lot of resources, saves a lot of processes. We should be doing a ton of pre-charge. So that's one, and I've, I've expressed that opinion in, in various forums. The second thing we should do is we should invest seriously in, again, the spectrum. Go back. Go back to the community justice centers, the community uh, organizations that are very trusted and have tons of credibility with the community. We send young people, especially, or young adults, to counseling and other communities, diversion pre-trial, not pre-charge, but pre-trial, or sometimes even post-trial. We say, we'll suspend the sentencing if you do this and that. We send them to all these organizations, but they're severely severely underfunded, and we need to do more there. We need to do better with respect to the bench. The bench has to reflect Canadian society. We have to do better. And the bar is very low because what Harper left us with, you remember, you know, half of Peter McKay's wedding party was was named to the bench. We can't have that kind of stuff. Very opaque process and so on. So we've improved the processes. We just have to be a little bit more deliberate at actually seeking out these communities. Uh, we need more prosecutors. We need more uh, who reflect, again, Canadians. They're, they're public uh, officials as well. We need to seriously have a, a very serious discussion across the country on legal aid for the most vulnerable. We need uh, prison reform, the programs that were gutted programs that that help with the rehabilitation. There was too much uh, focus on punishment uh, in the last 10 years than on, uh, than on rehabilitation. I've always found it odd on, on the question of rehabilitation versus punishment. Unless you're, it's a Paul Bernardo situation, you're going to throw them in jail for the rest of their life, and, and, they, and they, of course, deserve to be there for the rest of their life. The vast majority of inmates are going to be back in the community at exactly. some point. So if you, if you don't focus on rehabilitation, you're actually undermining... Public safety. Public safety. Yeah, it's, it's very short-sighted, and we're writing people off that we shouldn't be writing off. These are young. A lot of these folks are people who make one mistake, and then they become hardened after. So we have to give people exit ramps to be able to, uh, to benefit from. But going back to the previous question, a lot of the things that we've also done as a government to lift people out of poverty, for example, with the Canada Child Benefit, I have no doubt that Black Canadian kids have also benefited from those programs. It's just that we can't show it because we don't have disaggregated data with respect to the CCB, for example, or the, or the Canada Workers' Benefit or, 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 or things like that. I think we are doing a little bit better with the national housing strategy. We, are, we, we did an amazing job with the Emergency Community Support Fund because I knew that problem ahead of time. So when we were deploying the $350 million, I made it a condition of accessing the fund to the intermediaries, I said, I want you guys to come up with a plan before you disperse the first cent, before I'm able to give you anything. Show me what is your plan to be deliberate about making sure that everyone is included in your response. And they did. And then we, we didn't stop there. We, we had rolling updates. The first one was in four weeks. And then after that, every three weeks, where we were actually measuring not only the organizations, the type of organizations that were getting money from them, but also the recipients of the services in the population. And when we would see gaps, we would actually fill those gaps after with other rounds of funding. So that's how you should do it. And I think we, we, we need to take those kinds of approaches and apply them to, to other aspects. One of the areas that I think is a very low-hanging fruit, and I've mentioned this before, which will do wonders 
for black, indigenous and people of color and everyone else and everyone who's 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 uh, experiencing poverty in Canada is we need to do a better job at making sure that all our benefit programs are actually reaching the people that it's intended to. For the most part, it does. But Nate, if I tell you this number, I think you're going to be shocked. There's almost a billion dollars that comes back to the government of Canada every year that shouldn't be coming back. That money should be going to the people who actually need it. They're eligible for it and they need it. They actually are in need of that money. And the reason they don't get that money is because they can't navigate the systems that we have in place. And whatever we we can do to reduce that, I think we can do two things. One is to, to have government go to the people. And Minister Duclos started this and I've continued this where we have programs that go to, first, for example, First Nations reserves and indigenous communities and actually sign up people to the CCB yeah. through the tax system. Because, you, you know, uh, some of the indigenous folks don't have to file taxes depending on their status. But the problem is the CCB flows through the tax system. So you had bureaucrats actually going to these communities and signing them up. I like that program and, and I've been fighting to expand that. The second thing we should do is, regardless of all those programs, there's people which government will never be able to reach due to various reasons. And I think it's it's cost-effective and very important for us to also provide supports to organizations that sign up people for these programs. Because to me, I think that's poverty reduction, that's empowerment, because they're not giving money to anybody. They're enabling these people to access the, the, the money that they're eligible for and that they need. And so there's groups like Prosper Canada and others that... Uh, that we give money to. So I'm saying, the, the last thing I'll say is we should do that across the government, not just in my ministry. An automatic tax filing, which was promised recently in the fall, that would get us much of the way there to ensure that those dollars that are being lapsed would end up in, in the hands of people who really need them and, and, and are eligible and deserving and, and should be receiving those benefits. You've said we need to lift people up. You've said, you've used the language of poverty reduction and empowerment. And you've also, in your article in the Star, quoted from Martin Luther King and an incredible quote about how he's gravely disappointed with the white moderate and he's reached the regrettable conclusion that the greatest stumbling block for equality fundamentally for black people is the white moderate who would prefer peace and order and, and, and doesn't want to feel uncomfortable about change. In looking to Martin Luther King's writing and with mm -hmm. poverty reduction and economic empowerment in mind, he speaks very strongly, writes very strongly about a war on poverty, the fact that it fundamentally comes down to racial justice means economic justice. Yes. And you have mentioned the Canshall benefit, you mentioned the Canada workers benefit, but when we look at what we can do going forward and what more needs to be done. Don't we need to double down on our efforts to end poverty in this country if we care about racial justice? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because we know that uh, poverty pre-COVID and now is, uh, COVID has made it worse, impacts Black, Indigenous and people of color disproportionately. I'm not saying that poverty doesn't impact everyone, but it impacts those communities disproportionately. And so we, we have to be aware of that. But I also think that... Uh, you know, for programs that are working, we need to double down. Absolutely. And that's why, for example, with the Canada Child Benefit, we've in we increased it with a one-time payment in May of uh, 2020. Then we increased it permanently in July of 2020. 
to take into account inflation. Then this year, we promised to provide an additional $1,200 for each child under the age of six for the year 2021, additional dollars for families making $120,000 or less. Canada housing benefit, we didn't talk about that. Nate, that is a game changer because it's not tied to a unit. Doesn't go to a landlord. A portable benefit. Portable, and you can take it across the province that you live in. Uh, a number of provinces have signed on to it. It's going to make a difference. It's targeting the most vulnerable populations. So vulnerable seniors, indigenous peoples, uh, people who are homeless or experiencing homelessness, women fleeing domestic violence, and racialized Canadians. That's a game changer, and it's it's a deep benefit. It's not a it's not a small amount. So it, it will make a difference to that family that's stuck in a shelter that maybe can pay rent, but they don't have first and last. Or they can pay some rent, but they don't have enough. So Canada Housing Benefit is a great program, and it's a long-term program. It's not a one-year thing. And it's just starting to unfold. So that's great. The second thing we need to do is we need to to just invest in more housing. The programs like the Co-Investment Fund, Rapid Housing Initiative, it's working so well. It is working so well. You should see the projects that are coming forward that we will be funding. It's an incredible program. And, you know, the approval we got was in September. The closing date of the city stream was November. By December 31st, all the projects for the project stream came in and all the money will be committed or spent before March. That's that's really fast. We don't normally do things like that. But COVID has enabled us to move quicker. And, and so my, my point is, why can't we do that normally? And why don't we double down on those kinds of programs? Because it's massively oversubscribed. The Rental Construction Financing Initiative is massively oversubscribed. We got more money under the FES, but co-investment, we need more money. We need more money for, for the North. We need more money for urban, rural, and Northern indigenous off-reserve, right? So there's a lot more to be done. We've come a long way, but it, it is. And then we need to have a, a national conversation on the units we're losing to the market, to the real estate investment trusts. There was a time where the federal government was a thought leader on housing. I think now we've established our bona fides in the last five years, and I think we need to occupy that space again. Because we can build all the affordable housing we want, but we need to talk about how do we prevent the loss of other units. We also need to talk about, you know, a lot of times I end up talking about things that have nothing to do with housing, but are contributory. So for example, in the province of Manitoba, a substantial number of the homeless individuals are kids aging out of the provincial care system. How do we ensure that that, that transition doesn't lead to homelessness? And why are we building more shelters? We should be building more homes. It's like giving people life jackets, but not enabling them to have a path to get to shore. So you just keep giving them life jackets. Shelters were supposed to be temporary. And so my whole thing is we need to build more homes and, and we need to have a serious conversation in this country about the elimination of chronic homelessness, which thankfully the prime minister uh, has committed our government to. We will eliminate chronic homelessness, but we can't do it alone. We need the supportive services. We need the addiction services. We need the mental health supports. And all of that are provincial. And we, we've been giving them more and more money under the Canada health and social transfer payments. We are bringing the lion's share of the dollars for federal uh, housing uh, stock, but they need to do their part. And the municipalities, for God's sakes, need to also put the incentives in there. Why is it that municipality A can provide an incentive to build 500 units of affordable housing, but municipality B doesn't want to spend anything? 
and doesn't want to give any incentives or any breaks. And they both have those tools. So what's going on there? So there is a, a space for municipal leadership, and a lot of people don't know that. And I always highlight that to them to say, you guys can do this too. And yeah, we will build the buildings, but you know, come on board. Show us, show us what you can do. Your life jacket analogy reminds me too. I, I feel the same way about food banks versus Correct. income security, that food banks are designed as this emergency measure. The answer really is economic security through through income supports and my view, a, a more guaranteed minimum income. But hopefully we get there in some way by building around these Canada Child Benefit programs, the Canada Workers Benefit and more. So if we take a step back on the justice side, pre-charge diversion, mandatory minimum penalties, conditional sentencing, and I would throw in serious drug law reform because that is penalizing Black Canadians far more than, than, than it should and undermining the efforts that I think we want to see as it relates to supporting the people in need. And on economic support, you would want to see, I think, I would share the view, but much more money in the system for your rapid housing initiative, much more money in the system for economic empowerment through income supports, including for, you know, you talk about Canada Child Benefit increasing it. Well, the Canada Workers Benefit, which we increased modestly in the last mandate, but it's still only $2.1, billion a year. And it it is dwarfed by the 50 some odd billion dollars we spend on income supports for seniors and the $25 billion that we spend a year for, for the Canada Child Benefit. So much more needs to be done for the working poor, I would say. One conversation that needs to happen, I think, but I wonder, given your past role as immigration minister, partly it's a conversation about poverty, but partly it's just a conversation about how we can improve our pathways to residence, how we can improve our immigration systems to support people that are disproportionately racialized. Again, when we look at the temporary foreign worker program, and we've done a lot of good work as it relates to refugee intake, but it, it seems to me at least, but I wonder what you think, that we, we have not done enough to reform the temporary foreign worker program and to create those necessary pathways to residents to, to ensure that there's greater racial equality, actually, in the end. Honestly, you, you read my mind. That's exactly true. I, I think it's how you measure it. To be fair, we have, we have done a lot you know, in my time, and that work has been continued to create more pathways for, for permanent residency for temporary foreign workers. But is it enough? I don't think so. These are people who are attached to our communities. You know, I, I met a group of uh, Jamaican uh, temporary foreign workers who are coming as part of the agricultural program the, that they come every single year. And uh, I met them in Jamaica and um, I asked, I, I was going down the line, they're all sitting down. So I said, how many years have you gone to Canada, you know, total? And one said 29 years. The other one said 15 years. The other one said, I mean, I don't think there was any there who was less than 10 years. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. Now, granted, some of them don't want to stay in Canada permanently. They like that setup. But others would like to have a pathway to become permanent members of those communities, which they have. In re- Realistically, they are part of the community. And so that's the agricultural program. There's other temporary foreign workers who are here, who have been here. Their kids go to school with our kids. They work with with us. 
and they still don't have access to that pathway. So we need to do more. One of the programs I introduced was meat cutters and uh, those kinds of lower skilled uh, folks. I did a pilot program to give them more access to permanent residency, a couple of hundred spots. The same thing with um, with other other programs, and then and then we also made made life easier for them to make sure that they can move between employers and so on. Caregivers, that's another one. I mean, these were completely neglected folks. Eight year wait times to reunite with their families. These were people taking care of our families, and I reduced that to. Uh, but first of all, I got rid of the backlog. It was a huge backlog, and then. We introduced a new process that resulted in six six months processing time. So, but we can do more. There's hundreds of thousands of people who 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 are here, who contribute, who are part and parcel of our communities. We should we should integrate those folks, and we should find ways to to, uh, to allow them to become members of the Canadian family. So, when we talk about people who are existing members of our communities, I have been doing some reading about the history of regularization programs in Canada. And in 1973, Trudeau Sr. is the prime minister. We have the largest regularization program in Canada's history. 39,000 people are regularized in 1973. And their criteria is fairly general. It's people living in Canada before a specific date, economic stability, family relationships, humanitarian reasons. These are all considered. But it seems to me with Trudeau Jr., now our prime minister, 39,000 people should be the, the the bar that we should seek to surpass. It's a good target. I think there's a lot of folks who would meet those requirements that, that they're living here, that they that you know they, they've never fallen aside of the law, that they work, they're connected, they have family members who are Canadian. Like if you take that uh, that approach, you'll find that there's a lot of people we can integrate. I I'm always for giving people who are here, who are contributing an option, uh, a path to become Canadians. Obviously, we, we have to look at s- certain screening processes, but I think uh, philosophically, I'm, I'm all for that. Yeah. And to be fair, we have like, I mean, the, the, I, I did an undocumented pilot program for construction workers and their families. And we, you know, then there was the other piece. We, we had, I, I think, about 5,000 for uh, new spaces for TFWs to get, uh, to get access. And then we increased the, uh, the allocations in the PMP, like we did a lot and we introduced the rural program, the Atlantic program. So we did a lot of piecemeal pieces that when you co- when you collect together, actually add to a significant number. And we increased levels every single year that we've been in office, including next year. So, so I think there's room there. I just think there's, I'm always, I'm like you, I just think we can always do more. Well, I appreciate the way you framed it in your op-ed that using this month as a moment to reflect on some of the real obvious challenges that, that we've yeah. seen in in recent months and over the past year to highlight not only the the murder of George Floyd but in this conversation highlighting the dispro- the disproportionate impact of, of covid on black canadians as it relates to ec- the economic impact and and also just the impact of the virus itself and to say what can we do more let's use this month as an opportunity to reflect on how far we've come, but also to, to steal ourselves to say, we are going to do more. We need to do more and and, and let's do more. And and I do think when we look at criminal justice, economic empowerment, but also immigration policies, the more we think through these, these ideas as necessary aspects of racial equality, that we will, we will move the needle further on these important issues. So I, I hope we do. And the last thing I'll say, and I appreciate your time, is too often, I think, in conversations, especially as it relates to reconciliation, but especially as it relates to racial equality, we dwell on 
the disproportionate impact in the criminal justice system. We dwell on really challenging cases, but I also appreciate the need for role models. And you mentioned Viola Desmond. I would also say, I think it's really important for Canadians to read your writing and, and, and to hear your work because it's not so very often we see someone who comes from a background as a, as a refugee from Somalia to become a cabinet minister in the federal government. So I think that representation is incredibly important in and of itself. Oh, absolutely. And I also think representation is important everywhere, not just in politics, but in the media as well. I think the Canadian media needs to do a better job at representation. I think we need representation in the judiciary and everywhere else. Uh, and when these institutions and bodies better reflect Canada, they're not only good for representing those communities, they, they also become stronger, more resilient institutions. And in the world today, institutions matter because you know what happens when those institutions are under threat or attack, right? Thanks, Ahmed. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate that too. Thank you so much, Nate. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Uncommons. If you're interested in other episodes focused on questions of racial equality, I've been lucky to have been joined in the past for conversations with Greg Fergus, Akwazia Wusubempa, and Anna Maria Ananager. I appreciate Ahmed's time, of course, and while we certainly covered a lot of ground, I was wishing after we'd finished that we had another five or ten minutes of time to discuss policing, which obviously forms an integral part of any criminal justice reform effort, and kicking myself a little that I didn't ask him about a federal review of the RCMP. I mean, that's the police agency we're responsible for at the federal level, and in the wake of my podcast conversation with the Honorable Michelle Bastrash, I've drafted a motion to call for an independent commission of inquiry to review all activities of the RCMP to consider the force's history, including workplace and sexual harassment, systemic racism, use of force and role in contract policing, and to make recommendations for the future of the force, including with respect to its mandate, structure, culture, and governance. As you can probably tell from this conversation, I've also been focused on strengthening income security programs, reforming unjust drug policies, and mandatory minimum sentences. But if you have ideas or people I should reach out to on this question of racial equality and federal policy, federal action, please do be in touch. And otherwise, for the podcast, until next time.